and then we get a super hot CPI print. So basically the entire reason for the rally is nullified. One would reasonably expect for stocks to retrace the entire rally and go back to where they were four days prior before this whole rally got started. That's not happening. We're trying to make a push down to 39.70, 39.80, and we're holding those levels and we're bouncing right back. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how you doing today? Uh, you know, despite the S&P 500 being down 3%, the NASDAQ being down 4 and Bitcoin being down 7 I'm doing good today. I really good. am. I really am. I, I think we're in a, a slight and healthy pullback before we keep going higher. Um, the bears are wrong. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Well, I'm looking to see how they're wrong in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Ton of things we want to talk about, starting off today with, of course, the thing that's on everybody's mind, inflation. You know, the, like you said, the stock market is getting absolutely crushed this morning after August CPI numbers came in above expectations. CPI rose 8.3% year over year versus expectations of an 8.1% pop. Core inflation topped estimates too, rising 6.3% versus 6% expected. And stocks are getting absolutely pummeled right now. Um, you've told us before that inflation is going to be the next driver for the, of the markets over the next 12 months. With that said, is this bad news and is what's going on? Um, yeah, sure. So let's, obviously, that is the news of the day and it'll probably be the news of the week and perhaps the news of the month, at least until the Fed makes their big rate hike decision. Um, August CPI, there was expectation that it was going to be a very soft print. And we had a massive four-day rally in equities leading into the CPI print. Um, started last Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Monday were all very strong days for the market. Uh, and that was because people were placing bullish bets, investors were placing bullish bets on today's CPI data, on the August CPI number. Uh, people were looking for a seven-handle. We thought a seven-handle was going to be printed. Uh, we got 8.3% instead. So um, it was a shockingly hot print. And that's caused the four-day rally to unwind, unravel a little bit, but not entirely. The S&P jumped from 3,900 to 4,100 in that four-day rally. It's now retraced to 4,000. So we retraced about 50% of that four-day rally, two days, which really isn't that bearish. You would think that if we got this, we get this rally on the expectation of a super soft CPI print. And then we get a super hot CPI print. So basically the entire reason for the rally is nullified. One would reasonably expect for stocks to retrace the entire rally and go back to where they were four days prior before this whole rally got started. That's not happening. We're trying to make a push down to 39.70, 39.80, and we're holding those levels and we're bouncing right back. We're at 4,000, 4,005, 4,006. That's where we are right now on the S&P. So we aren't unraveling the four-day rally we had going into the print, despite the fact that the print was the exact opposite of what people were expecting. That, to me, is pretty bullish price action. Now, let's look at the actual numbers for CPI, right? Why might people be taking a more bullish stance on this print than what you might suspect them to take? I think it's because if you – yes, it was a miss. 8.3, uh -huh. 8.1 expected – core missed, month-over-month month rates missed. It was a miss, no doubt about it. But the trend is still our friend. Headline inflation in, I want to make sure I get the right numbers. Headline inflation in June, 9.1%. Headline inflation in July, 8.5%. Headline inflation in August, 8.3%. So yes, you were supposed to print 8.1. We printed 8.3 instead. That's technically a miss. But guess what? It's below 8.5 and it's below 9.1. We're still slowing. 
Inflation mm-hmm. is still slowing. You look at the month over month stuff. We were flat in July, 0%. And then we were up 0.1% in August. So mm-hmm. we've now had two months where inflation basically didn't go anywhere. For context, let me rattle off some of the numbers we were seeing before that. June, 1.3%. May, 1%. April, 03 March, 1.2%. February, 08 January, 06 December, 06 November, 07 uh, October, 09 You see my point here? We were rattling off 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9, 1.0, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. We were rattling off those types of numbers on a month-over-month basis for several months. Now, all of a sudden, we're at zero. Point one. So yes, we missed. It was not as cool as expected. But the disinflation narrative remains alive and well. Inflation mm-hmm. is cooling, just not as fast as some would have hoped. So what mm-hmm. that means, what the implications of the CPI print, the implications are the Fed is going to hike very aggressively. Mm-hmm. They're going to go 75 in September. Maybe a hundred. They're gonna go seventy-five the next meeting. They might go seventy-five the meeting after that. These guys are gonna jumbo punch inflation. And uh-huh. guess what? They're gonna knock it out. Inflation, <laughs> inflation, inflation. Everyone's freaking out about it because the hot CPI print. It's yesterday's problem. The mm-hmm. Fed is going to crush inflation. They've made that abundantly clear. So I'm not worried about inflation. Inflation is gonna die. We're gonna be at two percent in a year. What I'm worried about and what the market, I believe, is worried about and why we're not retracing all of our gains or rather just a portion of them Mm -hmm. is how much damage is the Fed going to cause in its fight against inflation? Mm -hmm. In order for, you know, Volcker and the Fed back in the 80s to get inflation under control after a decade of runaway inflation, it required a pretty healthy recession, a pretty deep recession. They had to hike rates very aggressively for a long period of time. That caused economic activity to shrink quite rapidly. It caused a recession. So the last time we were in the situation, we needed a pretty healthy recession to kill inflation. Is that going to be the case this time around? And that is the question everybody should be asking themselves right now. Not, is inflation going to stick around? The answer 100% is no, inflation is not going to stick around. It's going to die because the Fed's going to take a shotgun to its head. What the question should be is in shooting that shotgun, what is the collateral damage? Can the economy withstand rate hikes, an aggressive Mm -hmm. Fed? Or is the economy on such fragile footing that if the Fed does move more aggressively than expected, we see a collapse in the economy and we get a recession, we get a hard landing, and 2022-2023 look pretty nasty from an economic growth perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's the question that we're being posed with right now. And I think the reason stocks, you know, everybody's looking at the headline numbers and they're saying, oh, my God, it's a crash. It's so disgusting. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. I look at it and I'm like, I'm really shocked it's not worse. Mm-hmm. Again, for the reasons I just said, we had a massive four-day rally into this, a straight line elevator shaft up. And we're only giving back about half those gains, less than half those gains on – a catalyst that completely nullified that entire rally, mm-hmm. nullified that entire rally. We should be giving up all those gains, but we're not. And I think the reason being is people are asking the question, how much damage is the Fed going to cause in hiking rates? And I think it's not going to be that much. The economy is fragile, but mm-hmm. the labor market is strong. And that's what matters. So mm-hmm. long as people have jobs, you know, the economy can withstand lower spending. It can withstand low, lower confidence. It can withstand lower investment. It can withstand all those things so long as people have jobs. And people today have jobs. Layoffs are rising, but it's like a Goldilocks layoff situation. You're seeing layoffs in tech firms that overhired during the pandemic and finance firms that overhired during the pandemic. Yet you're seeing hiring shortages and massive job openings in Um, More blue collar work, so to speak, more manual labor, uh, restaurants, servers, factory workers, delivery drivers, all that stuff. There are massive job openings going on. There are massive massive hiring surges happening over there. So if people are getting fired from a programming job, there is work available. Is it the work Uh they want to do? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on the individual. But work is available. 
because you have shortages on one side of the labor market, yet surpluses on the other side of the labor market. So long as that remains true, I think the labor market broadly overall remains on healthy footing. If times get really tough, the person who was a programmer, well, they can end up becoming a, a, a server or something else, and it's going to be okay. That is how the economy is going to progress. Things are going to be okay. The economy is on solid enough footing, specifically the labor market is on solid enough footing to absorb even an ultra-aggressive Fed that's going to kill inflation. So I think what you get over the next 12 months mm-hmm. is you get inflation really slowing down in a significant manner because the Fed is going to hike rates in a significant mm-hmm. manner. Like I said, they may go 100 this month. I want them to go 100 this month. They may go 75 next month. I want them to go 75 next month. And they may go 75 month after, month after that. I want them to go 75 a month after that. The more aggressive the Fed is today – in their fight against inflation, the less we have to worry about inflation being a long-term problem. Nobody wants a repeat of the 70s. That was awful. So why don't we just rip the stinking Band-Aid off and kill inflation as quickly as possible? Is it going to cause some short-term economic pain? Absolutely. But the economy right now is strong enough to withstand that. The Fed knows that. One of the things that I, I get a little upset about when I look at market commentary is mm-hmm. all of the people slamming the Fed. Mm-hmm. The, the, these Twitter trolls slamming the Fed. What, what, do you, what do you know that they don't? Yeah. Jerome Powell is an exceptionally smart individual. The Federal Reserve voting members are exceptionally smart individuals. They are very well educated. They have studied their entire life for economic situations like this. They know what they're doing. Have a little faith. Have a little faith that people who study their whole lives to do exactly what we need them to do right now are going to do what we need them to do right now, which is kill inflation while the economy is still very strong and get us to the other side with a soft-ish landing. I think it's going to be what they call a growth recession, which is a period of prolonged growth below trend, but Mm -hmm. not a true recession. So next 12 months, inflation falls rapidly. Economic activity activity contracts, but not to recessionary levels. The labor market shows some signs of weakness, but doesn't completely fall out of bed. And you just get a generally slowing economy with Mm -hmm. slowing inflation. And we eventually revert, mean revert to the macroeconomic conditions that persisted throughout the 2000s and 2010s. Low inflation, low rates, low commodity prices, and a slow-moving economy. That's where Mm -hmm. we're going to be by the middle of 2023. Right now, we're just in a transition period to get there. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of investors do see that. They're seeing that right now. And that, again, is why we're at 4,010 now on the S&P. We're not giving back that much of the rally. That's impressive. That's impressive. So that, that brings me the, one of the things that you've been talking about in this transitory period is that, you know, we're going to have this two steps forward, one step back approach. Is that what we're seeing right now? Is this the exactly. one step back? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up a technical chart of the S&P right now. Okay. Um, oh, I'm, on, I'm on the wrong computer. Let me uh, – I'll, I'll screen share it. I'm getting this chart. I'm going to – paste it to myself on the other computer and, <laughs> and pull it up all these all these fun things um i'm pulling up a technical chart of the sp 500 and the fact of the matter is yes two steps forward one step back two step forward one step back and i'm going to get this here share 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 Okay, yep. can we see it? Yep. So here's the S&P 500, right? I mean, mm-hmm. bottom in June, hit this bottom here in uh, mid-late August, bounce, and now we're just coming back. I think we're going to come back right to here. That's around 3980, 3970. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, we're going we're gonna to bounce right back up uh, and go higher. So that's where we are. And actually, if you kind of make this an intraday chart, uh let me get like a like a 30 minute tick on it as opposed to because that that, that's daily close Mm -hmm. you know we did we came down right about to that 3980 level and then bounced off of it pretty nicely so this line actually kind of came down and hit this on an intraday basis and and bounced back up so Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean we're not going to go lower you know we might get a close down here and then bounce back up but yeah two steps forward 
Two steps forward, one step back. Two step forward, one step back. Two step forward, one step back. Two step forward, one step. I think that that's the trend we do mm-hmm. into the end of the year and for the next twelve months. It really does feel like a lot has fundamentally changed for um, for the markets over the past two to three months because inflation is peaking and is coming down. The pace of inflation coming down is not certain and the market's disappointed it's not coming down faster than what a lot of people thought it would come down but Mm -hmm. still it is coming down and as it comes down we'll do two steps forward one step back and we'll continue to grind higher into the end of the year that is my base case thesis right now and importantly if we look at the markets today oil is down Mm -hmm. oil is down that's because people are expecting the fed in the they're expecting the fed to really ramp up their fight against the economy, basically, because the fight against inflation is a fight against the economy. Mm-hmm. So with oil down, oil is the the mother of all energy costs. So if oil keeps going lower, then you know what? Inflation is going to keep going lower. So I think that the trend remains our friend, and this is just noise in the trend. So stick with this trend. Stick with the uptrend. <laughs> that, that, that's my two cents right now. Okay. Uh, so it sounds like you're not actually – Concerned with the CPI numbers and still think stocks are going to can and will move higher into the end of the year and that growth stocks are going to be the big winners. So taking that all at face value, let's dive into some of the sectors that could uh, perk up if the broader markets improve. Um, One sector I wanted to touch on is sports betting. Uh, We haven't talked about this much on the podcast, but it's in the headlines these days. You know, NFL season started, football's underway. And, you know, with that happening, sports betting volume on opening weekend surged. Uh, Am I right? And if I am, what are the investment opportunities here? Right. Sure. Yeah. So sports betting uh, volume Thursday night through Sunday night was up about 72 percent year over year. Uh, Some of that can be chalked up to what was a very fascinating opening week for the NFL. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think a, a record number of teams, four teams overcame double-digit deficits in the yep. first half yeah, and yeah. winning or tying the game. So very interesting week, obviously. You had Tom Brady on Sunday Night Football. So there was a, it was a very interesting week. So maybe some of this Thursday to Sunday thing is a more interesting week one than last year. But mm-hmm. that doesn't explain 72% growth. I mean, that's a lot of growth. There is clearly – I think the number of logins was over 100 million. So the number of – people that tried to log into sports betting apps like DraftKings or Caesars over the Thursday to Sunday period is 100, 103 million logins, I think was the number. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's just in America. There's 340 million people in America. So more than one out of four people are trying to log into sports betting apps to place a bet on an NFL game. That's it. That's absurd. That's yeah. a truly wild number. If you told me 100 million people watched the NFL games this past week, I'd be like, that's a lot, let alone <laughs> bet on it. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about some very massive numbers here, and it's indicative of the broader sports betting trend becoming normalized. You know, mm-hmm. For a long time, sports betting was kind of like this sin activity. People mm-hmm. watch sports, but betting on sports, ew, gross. Like, that's, that's what – that's not me. You know, that's – yeah, no. But now <laughs> – now it's becoming one and the same, intertwined. You watch sports, you bet on sports. You watch sports, you bet on sports. Mm-hmm. It's more of a community thing. That's what DraftKings has done. That's what FanDuel has done. That's what fantasy football has done. Fantasy sports have done. They've made betting on sports a community social thing. So it's mm-hmm. not going to the casinos and smoking cigars and placing bets. And, you know, that has a dirty vibe to it that a lot of younger folks in the millennial and Generation Z – don't like but what they do like is getting on their phones and talking s-h-i-t with their friends about mm-hmm. you know this guy had 20 23 yard rush this guy had a, a 56 yard uh reception touch you know like they love talking crap about that oh you were wrong about that oh lebron made this free throw. you know like people just love talking crap about sports one another so once you overlaid that social element on top of the naturally occurring phenomenon of People love sports and people love to make money. Mm-hmm. Once you overlaid that on top of those two drivers, you made sports betting socially acceptable. You made sports betting fun. You made it something that I don't feel ashamed to do. And that is opening the floodgates. The legal uh, picture is shaping up very nicely. I think it's something, I think the exact number is 37 states plus Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. have 
some form of legal sports betting. So that means only 13 states don't. And if you look at the 13 states that don't, Texas is one of them. Outside of Texas, it's a bunch of states that don't have that many people. The big populated states, California, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, and all those big states, sports betting is legal. So I think something around 80 to 85% of the U.S. population lives in a state with legal sports betting operations. That's wild. Four or five years ago, only Vegas and Atlantic City had sports betting and and um, uh, Native American casinos. Mm-hmm. That's where sports betting was constricted to. Now it's in every state outside of Texas and in a few other states. So that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. And I think it's the start of what is going to be a, a pretty large trend in sports betting. I think that within five to 10 years, maybe sooner than that even, sports betting becomes as normal as sports watching. You will have as many people watching sports as you will have betting on the outcome of sports. And Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about betting on games per se, but betting on personal stats lines, stat lines, betting on, you know, micro bets, Mm in-game bets. Is LeBron going to make this free throw? Is Tom Brady going to, going to complete this third down pass? Are they going to run or or, are they going to rush? Are they going to pass? Different micro bets like that within the game. Is he going to make this 53-yard field goal? Those types of bets I think you're going to gain the most traction. Mm-hmm. And if we talk about ways to play that, of course, there's DraftKings. That's the hyper-growth stock and on everybody's radar. Um, and then there, there's a few others out there. Churchill Downs is a name that's that's worth watching. But broadly, there are enough sports betting stocks in the market that if you strategically place the correct bets today on the right names, mm-hmm. I think you're going to make some pretty good money not just over the next three to four to five years, but probably over the next three months, because I think this pullback in stocks is going to be short-lived and we're going to bounce back. The uptrend is going to persist. And if that does happen, if the NFL season also continues to see really, really, really strong momentum with sports betting, these are the type of long duration assets that could simultaneously benefit from an improving macroeconomic backdrop, as well as an improving fundamental situation with sports betting volume soaring during the NFL season. So mm-hmm. those names are pretty interesting to me right now, literally right now here in early September, mid-September. Those are some pretty interesting names on my radar. We talked about this last week, how you don't believe in seasonal uh, trends, but with you know football being a seasonal thing, are you, do you kind of foresee it impacting these stocks the same way you know we saw this opening weekend? Uh, no, no, I, I don't view this as a seasonal thing. I view it as a fundamental catalyst. It's not so much as the NFL season started. So buy sports betting stocks, mm-hmm. it's the NFL season started and we out of nowhere, surprisingly got a 72% jump in sports betting volume. Okay. If next year we also get a 70% jump, then yes, sports betting stocks will likely work in September and October of next year. But we probably won't. Maybe it'll be like a 10 or 15% jump. It's just the fact that we had a 70% jump in sports betting volume in week one. If that persists and the macroeconomic backdrop shapes up, then you probably get stocks, those stocks going higher, considerably higher over the next one to two months. Okay. Uh, Moving on, you know, I've been reading some of your daily notes that you send out to your subscribers. um, And I've been seeing you mention a lot of positive developments in the energy storage sector. you know, we talk about energy storage a lot here, but you've been talking about it even more lately. Should we be bullish on these stocks? Uh, yes, there are there are quite a few uh, positive developments happening in the energy storage industry right now. Um, I think that some of the big ones are Tesla is ramping production of its power wall, which is its residential energy storage system. Mm-hmm. It's also ramping production of its mega pack, which is its commercial energy storage system. And then just yesterday or two days ago, by the time people watch this, uh, Tesla has required that all solar roof orders now are accompanied by a power wall, meaning that if you're going to buy a solar roof for your home, you also have to buy a power wall. That sort okay. of underscores this idea that without energy storage, solar isn't that useful. But with mm-hmm. energy storage, solar is a very complete package. So um, Tesla is clearly getting very bullish on ESS, on energy storage systems, residential mm-hmm. ramp, commercial ramp, and making it a requirement that when people order a solar roof, they have to order a 
resident uh, Powerwall ESS as well. So Tesla is clearly going all in. Um, I believe Greece just wanted like a $340 million grant from the EU to essentially execute its pipeline of energy storage projects. Ireland just broke ground on a massive energy storage project that I think is going to power Dublin. Uh, that just broke ground last week, I believe. Um, we saw Energy Vault break ground on a big energy storage, gravity-based energy storage project here in California. Uh, there's just there's a lot of positive things going on. Let me go through my notes. There's a little bit. Uh, the first Tesla Mega Pack arrived in Hungary. Um, for installation yesterday, two days ago, the time people watch this. Um, the UK uh, just made announcements on over 600 megawatts of energy storage projects. So you're seeing all of these kind of announcements and developments happen across the globe from California to Ireland, the UK, to Hungary, um, to Greece, across Europe and North America the energy transition is front of mind for people because right. of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, because of the shortfall of oil, because of soaring gas prices, because of soaring energy prices in Europe. The energy transition is a very important thing that people are thinking about these mm -hmm. days. Companies and consumers are thinking about these days. And when they think about the energy transition, a gut reaction is, okay, let's let's go clean, let's go solar, let's go wind, let's do those things so that we can break our reliance on fossil fuels. But then people are like, wait, wait, wait I, I can't power my entire operations, my entire home, my entire commercial building, my entire city on solar unless I have batteries to back that solar up, unless they have mm -hmm. energy storage systems to back that up. So that's the logic that's happening right now across North America and Europe, and it's leading to and a rapid increase in awareness of and adoption of energy storage projects. So I could not be more bullish on ESS stocks for the next six to 12 months. There are some names in the market. I can't give them away right now, but I'm sure if you did your own digging, you can find them. Mm -hmm. There are some names out there that are just, I think have so much upside potential. I think they're going to be some of the biggest winners of the 2020s and some of the biggest winners over the next six to 12 months as this ESS revolution really goes mainstream and really starts to gain traction and finds its place in the energy transition. So very bullish on ESS, remain very bullish, have been very bullish, remain very bullish, and likely will remain bullish for the foreseeable future. Okay. Um, staying in this clean tech world, I also saw that you gave a shout out to solar powered electric vehicles in your daily notes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these have been popping up in my feed too, like a lot lately. Is this more of a bullish on clean tech that you're interested in this development specifically? Or is it just, or sorry, are you actually bullish on solar EVs? Or is it just like a really cool trend that you're seeing popping up like they are in my feeds? So I think what I'm bullish on is the marriage of solar and electric vehicles, okay. not necessarily solar powered EVs. I think those are really cool. Mm -hmm. But I, from what I've seen, the numbers I've seen on a couple of the prototypes that are released, I'm not terribly impressed. I don't think they have what it takes in terms of range, in terms of horsepower, mm -hmm. in terms of just raw power to be competitive with electric vehicles as they stand today, like a Tesla or mm -hmm. like, a, like a Rivian. So I, I think that maybe 10 years down the road, solar EVs could be a massive thing. But today the tech is so nascent. Um, I'm not very bullish on those becoming a thing on the roads within the next mm -hmm. five to 10 years. Or even further, I'm not really confident in the companies building those. That we're so early in the game, there's no saying that a company like Sono uh, yeah. or Aptera, there's no saying that they're going to be the leader in solar EVs in five to 10 years because there's just so much that's going to change in the industry over that time frame. The visibility into who's going to be the leader remains very, very, very limited. So I'm not bullish on solar electric vehicles as an investment today. But what mm -hmm. I am bullish on is the marriage of solar and electric vehicles. Okay. So something else that's, that's a couple interesting developments happening is one, I forget the name of the company, but they debuted this prototype, a solar tree, a solar charging, EV charging tree. Okay. So what it is, is it's this obviously artificial tree that has a canopy, but as opposed to leaves being the canopy, it's solar panels being the canopy. Mm -hmm. So it's an EV charger with a canopy of solar panels above to provide shade, which is always nice for the car. But obviously it draws 
power from those solar panels mm -hmm. goes into the charger and then powers your car. So okay. that is really cool. I think that is the future of EV charging. I think that EV chargers with solar panels are okay. the future because if you really think about it, batteries aren't an energy source. They're just a store of energy. So if you're, you drive an electric car and you go to an electric vehicle charging station and you plug it in and you charge it, if that electricity is being produced from coal, then your EV really isn't that clean, right? Mm -hmm. The way it's clean is if the electricity you're pulling from is being produced by a clean energy source like solar or like wind. So I think you're going to see a bigger and bigger push in this movement, in this energy transition movement towards solar powered EV charging stations. Okay. And I think that is a future development that is worth investing in today because I just see there's huge upside in that movement over the next five years. I really like that. Another one that people are trying are essentially solar panel roads. Now, this is further down the line, but it's basically mm -hmm. highways made of solar panels or alongside the highways, even solar panels. The, the point being that there's some way to generate solar power on the road so that it dynamically charges your car so that as you're driving, it's charging the car. That mm -hmm. technology is further off down the road, kind of like solar EVs, but it's a really interesting way to think about how do we use the sun to power electric vehicles and not other energy sources. So what I am seeing, Aaron, is a marriage, an increasingly large marriage between solar technologies and electric vehicle technologies. Mm -hmm. And I do think in that overlap, there are going to be some very promising investment opportunities. A lot of them are very not sent right now and not mm -hmm. super investable. But I do think solar-powered EV charging stations are happening right now, are mm -hmm. investable right now, and you can't make money off that trend right now. So that's the one I'm most excited about in the short term. But again, this okay. marriage of solar and EV, very promising in my opinion. Okay, cool. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Um, keeping with the vehicle innovations, uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about autonomous vehicles. Um, I think the biggest thing that is on people's mind when we talk about autonomous vehicles is that we just keep talking about autonomous vehicles. seems like we just keep waiting and waiting for these self-driving cars to arrive and still nothing. Um, so I guess the question is, when are self-driving cars coming to the world? So I think a, a big thesis that we mentioned before on this podcast is that mm -hmm. self-driving car, everybody, you know, you sit down and think self-driving car. Okay. Yeah. When is, when is the car going to arrive in my driveway? That's going to mm -hmm. drive me from yep. place to place. That's because yes. people are selfish. So what they think yeah. about it. Really <laughs> yes, absolutely. Is, when, is, when is my self-driving yes, car, when is my car coming to pick me up? Yeah. To my house to pick me up, to take yes. me where I want to go. That's what everybody cares about. But the whole thing about this is that, that is like the third or fourth step of the self-driving revolution. The mm -hmm. first step, before you transport people, you got to be able to safely transport goods. Mm -hmm. And that's where autonomous vehicle technology is being applied today, the self-transportation of goods. Because the risk, the downside risk of a bad accident, if mm -hmm. you're self-driving goods is you lose the goods some groceries mm -hmm. gone hundred dollar order groceries gone two dollar order groceries gone your twenty dollar domino's pizza gone sucks yeah. but oh well right oh well mm -hmm. move on um the downside risk of bad accident when you're self-driving people is is death not <laughs> not oh well not move on very bad deal bad, so, yeah. What you have to do before the my self-driving self car can come to my house and take me places, mm -hmm. that self-driving car first has to go to Domino's, be able to pick up the pizza, come to your house and deliver it safely, regularly, and reliably. Once mm -hmm. it does that enough times and does that on enough, in enough places and enough situations with enough goods, then and only then will your self-driving car arrive at your house and take you places. So mm -hmm. that is step two, three, four of the self-driving revolution. First, we got to conquer, you know, step one, which is transporting goods. And we are conquering that step right now actively. Okay. So we've talked about Domino's. Domino's yes. has been a pioneer in this space. They partner with a company named Neuro. Neuro develops these small autonomous vehicles, about maybe one third the size of a regular car. And those, what happens is you, know, you place an order, the Domino's delivery, the Domino's uh 
location, makes the pizza. They put the pizza, a bunch of pizzas in this neuro, and the neuro drives around, drives itself from house to house to house. People go up, they unlock it with their phones, they take their pizza, and then boom, that's it. So Domino's has pioneered this in Houston, and it's been a success. So now Neuro, just last week, teamed up with Uber Eats. So Uber Eats is going to take that exact same style and okay. use it for their deliveries. They're going to test it, I think, in – let me get the states right. I'm going to pull the press release. Uh, in Texas and California by the end of the year. So they're going to start testing that. So your next Uber Eats delivery might be delivered by an autonomous vehicle if you live in, te- in uh, Texas or California. So that's a pretty big deal. Meanwhile, smaller deal, but still indicative of the movement. Um, up at Wayne State University in, in Michigan, you're seeing uh, the campus use these same little robots to deliver goods, food specifically, from restaurants on campus. So you're living in a dorm and you're hungry. And as opposed to getting out of the dorm and walking down to, you know, the local Chipotle on campus and getting food, waiting in line and then bringing it back, what you can do now at Wayne State is you can just get on your phone, order Chipotle, and then, mm-hmm. you know, this they make it. They put it in this little robot. The robot drives to your dorm, texts you when it's there. You go down, use your phone to unlock it. You take your order, you go back up and eat it. That's happening on, on Wayne State University's uh, college campus right now. I think it's going to happen on many other college campuses. I would love to see that happen on Caltech. I would love to see that happen uh, at UCSD, at UCLA, at USC. I think it's, it's a fabulous application of this technology. So when are self-driving cars going to arrive, Aaron? They're, they're here. Okay. They're, they are making an impact today. Mm-hmm. They're not making an impact in the way you want them to make an impact. Because, <laughs> And by you, I mean – I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I want somebody to pick, I want to pick me up. Yeah. The, the, the general you. Um, yes. Yeah. That's not here. That probably mm-hmm. won't be here until 2025. But so, my my conviction in that happening goes up because I'm seeing it happening with goods. And mm-hmm. I know what the thinking of the engineers and the executives behind these companies is, is, okay, let's test this tech with goods. Let's mm-hmm. make sure for a year or two it can do this really, really well. Mm-hmm. And there's no accidents. There's no adverse uh, events. And when there are ones that happen, we know how to resolve them. We improve our technology and we fine tune everything. We're in that fine tuning period. Yep. Let's fine tune with these goods that don't have a high opportunity cost. Let's fine tune with that. Then once that fine tuning is done, we can introduce this technology to people, to your car, to pick you up at your home and take you from place to place. I think that happens by 2025. Between mm-hmm. now and then, it's a bunch of testing. I like to be invested in that testing phase because you can identify leaders yet still be early and bag huge rewards. So that's why I'm very bullish on AV stocks right now. So then let me ask you this. You know, we talk, you're talking about how we're in this kind of phase one of autonomous vehicles where, you know, we're having these smaller test cases like Domino's, like the, the universe you're talking about. When are we going to see that phase one expand to, you know, a global market where we have everybody ordering their food through autonomous vehicles? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's in the process of happening right now. Okay. Domino's, Houston, Uber Eats, California, Texas, Wayne State University. Like, I think uh, I know Grubhub is is doing these uh, autonomous deliveries. So you're seeing this expansion happen month by month, quarter by quarter, and it's mm-hmm. going to keep expanding. So I think by 2023, a lot of the food that you order online could be delivered by an autonomous vehicle. By 2024, it may be almost a ubiquity. So I think within the next 12 to 24 months, you're going to start seeing autonomous vehicle usage on roads absolutely soar. Not Mm -hmm. for the transportation of people, but for the the transportation transportation of goods. Got it. Okay. Awesome. I want to get into our market check-in. And what I want to do right now is kind of get into some of the sectors that we've talked about in the past. Uh, sectors that you've been bullish on, sectors you've been bearish on, and just kind of get where you're at today. Sure. Um, the two sectors that you've been super bullish on for the next 12 months are space and robotics. So mm-hmm. how are those industries trending right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited what's going on with space. SpaceX had a really big launch on Saturday, uh, launched some, some pretty important satellites up into space. That was a success, mm-hmm. went off without a hitch. That was pretty exciting. Uh, Planet Labs is, is, is one of those uh, publicly traded space stocks, just reported a fabulous quarter. And actually, today, when the market's getting slammed, um, Planet Labs, last I checked, was up about 14%. So 
Um, you know, fabulous. I think there's a lot of good developments happening in space right now. I'm excited about what's going down there. Um, and then robotics, Amazon just bought Klusermans, which is a warehouse robotics company. I mean, we've been pounding the table on warehouse robotics for a long time. Mm-hmm. Automation is coming. Automation yep. is coming. Automation is coming. And it's, it's going to be low level automation. That's where the automation wave is going to strike first, because where are you seeing labor shortages? We just talked about this, the bifurcation of the labor market. It's not in Silicon Valley. It's in Central Valley. Mm-hmm. Facebook can find enough coders to, to make an app. Netflix can find enough coders to to, to make its its uh, its streaming platform and its recommendation algorithm. Amazon can find enough engineers. You know, those companies do not have any trouble finding people to work for them. It's the farmers. It's the factory operators. It's the manual labor industries that are having a tough time finding labor because mm-hmm. as it turns out when you tell a kid that he can make six figures a year by simply typing really fast on his computer he doesn't want to work in a factory go figure mm-hmm. he doesn't want to work on a farm go figure like we created a world where people can make six figures by just typing really fast on their computer it should be no surprise now that we have a shortage of manual laborers that it's a society we created mm-hmm. yeah so how do we fix that? Well, we fix it with automation. Mm-hmm. The labor shortage is happening in those industries. Now we need automation to fix that labor shortage. We need low-level automation. We need to replace lost farm productivity with robots. We need to replace lost factory productivity with robots, lost logistics productivity with robots, lost transportation uh, productivity with robots. You're going to start seeing that happen. Amazon's making a huge push here. Amazon's mm-hmm. now made two robotics acquisitions in about a month. Remember, mm-hmm. they bought iRobot about a month ago. Mm-hmm. A company that makes the little robotic vacuums yep. um, and robotic mops and robotic pool cleaners. And they were supposed to do a robotic lawnmower that didn't pan out. Amazon <laughs> bought them. Mm-hmm. Amazon bought Klusterman's. That's two pretty big robotics acquisitions in a month. Amazon's going all in with robots. They see robots as the future. First wave was e-commerce. Second wave was cloud computing. Third wave is robotics. Mm-hmm. So they, they, you know, they're one step ahead of the game always. And I think that they're one step ahead this time where robotics is the future. And you're going to see massive adoption of low-level automation technologies over the next 6 to 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. One of the defining megatrends, defining themes, defining technological trends of the 2020s will be automation, robotics, and specifically low-level automation and robotics. Restaurant workers, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of automation there. Factories, okay. a lot of automation. Farms, a lot of automation. Think of anything that's relatively lower pay, anything that's relatively manual labor skewing, that's where you're going to see automation happening. There's a lot of reasons for that, but that's where you're going to see automation happening. And I'm very bullish on the companies producing the services, technologies, and products to service that need for automation Mm -hmm. in, uh, in those types of jobs. Okay. Um, well, let's check in on some of the stocks that you're bearish on. Uh, we kind of touched on it a little earlier, starting with oil, it's been crushed. So what's going to happen next? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've kind of <laughs> been wishy-washy with the oil thing, right? I mean, we were definitely vocally short in 125, came down to 85, said, Hey, maybe cover that short because, you know, the Saudis are trying to put a floor on it. Then it mm. dropped all the way to 80, bounced back up to 87. I think oil is going to get crushed again, actually. Mm-hmm. Today's CPI print confirmed that for me. Okay. Today's CPI print was hot enough to confirm that the Fed is going to go, excuse my French, but balls to the wall mm-hmm. on inflation. Okay. They are going to go as hard as they've gone on anything in the past 40 years against inflation in late 2022. That is going to hurt economic activity. That is going to cause oil prices to go lower. Not mm-hmm. to mention, Ukraine is making very significant advancements against Russia in mm-hmm. that war. The thinking is that if Ukraine continues to make such advancements, the odds of the war coming to a semi-diplomatic resolution in the near future and oil exports resuming goes up. Mm-hmm. Those odds move higher over the next six months. 
economy slows over the next six months because of the Fed and other central banks around the world. What's kind of lost in the sauce is that it wasn't just the U.S. that put up a hot CPI, higher than expected CPI. I think Germany put up a hotter than expected CPI. I think this, mm-hmm. I think Switzerland did too. So a lot of countries over in Europe actually put up hotter than expected CPIs too. So did Japan. So it's over in Asia too. So it wasn't just America that put up a hotter than expected CPI for August. It was everybody. Mm-hmm. That means central banks everywhere are going to step up their fight against inflation. Oil is a global commodity. Global demand matters, not just domestic demand. So global demand is going to go lower over the next six months. I think global supply actually inches higher over the next six months. That creates a situation wherein oil prices crash. So oil 65 back on as the target for the end of the year. We're at 86 and change right now. So I think we have another $20 lower on, on oil prices. So I am back to being extremely bearish on oil. I was very bearish. Pull back on the bearishness after the Saudis came in with the supply cuts. Saw yeah. that the Saudi supply cuts didn't even freaking matter whatsoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing that this Fed is probably going to go, you know, boom, 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 boom with inflation. And if they mm-hmm. do that and Saudi supply cuts don't matter, yeah, I think it's down and out for oil. $65 oil is where I'm where I'm looking for 2022, by the end 2022. Uh, another uh, another sector that's been crushed uh, that you told us to stay away from and thank the lord you have uh, semiconductor stocks uh, they, they're not doing so good uh, should we just continue to stay away yeah stay away from that the, the uh, semiconductor association has reported semi global semiconductor sales uh, for July they were down month over month up 7.3% year over year but the growth is clearly decelerating it's a very bearish trend you, you don't want to let me let me just pull the chart so you guys can kind of visualize this very easily. It's it's a very easy chart to, to look at and understand. Oh, this is why we're staying away from them, and this is when we're <laughs> going to get back into them. Because I do believe at some point in the very near future we are going to get a tremendous buying opportunity, but mm-hmm. not now, not now. okay. Uh, we still have to wait a little bit. So let me go ahead and get that chart going. Um, do you see it? Yep. So this is the world. Uh, worldwide semiconductor revenues. Uh, the red line is the year-over-year growth rate. So that's that's what I track. What you want to do is you want to buy semiconductor stocks when they trowel on this. As you can see, this is very cyclical. We talked yeah. about it. Semiconductors yep. are cyclical. People mm-hmm. forgot about that. I don't know why people forgot about that. Mm-hmm. They're cyclical. Mm-hmm. Clearly, periods of high revenue growth followed by periods of low revenue growth, high revenue growth, low, high, low, high, low, high, low, mm-hmm. high, you know, blah, 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 on, 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 on. Cyclical. We're clearly decelerating. Don't buy semi-stocks when the revenue growth rates are decelerating. Don't do it. Just mm-hmm. don't do it. Wait for this to bottom, to trow and turn around. That's when we get into semi-stocks. So I'm following this chart. I'm following this data. They publish this data every month. As mm-hmm. soon as this starts to go like that and does a bit yep. of a uni, that's when we get back into semi-stocks. Mm-hmm. That's when we get bullish. That's when things are turning around because clearly, as you can see, I mean, there are a couple head fakes here, maybe, but normally after a prolonged period of declines, as soon as we turn the corner, we turn the corner for a while. Yeah. Right. Look at that. I mean, these are very prolonged upturns, mm-hmm. very prolonged. So I'm just waiting for this just to form a little cup. And mm-hmm. once it does, man, I'd say we're going to get a prolonged recovery. So there is going to be a tremendous time to buy semiconductor stocks. But that time is not now. Stay away. Wait for the semi-revenue growth rates to continue to decelerate. Wait for mm-hmm. them to start bottoming, stabilizing. Once they do and they start U-turning in another direction, that's when we get into semi-stocks. Peter Lynch had this very famous quote. Peter Lynch, godfather of investing really, had a very famous quote that said something like, one of the surest ways to lose half your money in the market is to buy a cyclical or a commodity stock when it's trading at a very low P multiple mm-hmm. and after a few years of big outperformance. Mm-hmm. And that's very counterintuitive because people think, oh, and I hear this all the time, airlines are trading it at five times earnings. They're so cheap, you got to buy it. Oh, mm-hmm. the semi-stock's trading at six times earnings. It's so cheap, you got to buy it. Oh, oil stocks are only trading at seven, eight times earnings. It's so cheap, you got to buy it. That's the worst time. 
the worst time to buy those stocks because the definition of cyclical means the E in the P multiple goes up and down very wildly. Mm -hmm. So when the E is very large, the denominator is very large, the PE is very low. That's when you sell because that means earnings have tapped out. You mm -hmm. buy when the PE on those stocks is very big. So soon enough, the earnings on semiconductor stocks are going to fall out. The PE is going to get blown out. It's going to be massive. Mm -hmm. Then the semiconductor revenues are going to turn around, and that is when we get in and buy those stocks. That's probably when we get in and buy oil and gas stocks. That's mm -hmm. probably when we get in and buy you know, all of these cyclical stocks that have boomed that are now mm -hmm. de-booming. They're going to keep yeah. de-booming despite all these people saying, oh, they're so cheap. They're so cheap. Yes, they're cheap on mm -hmm. earnings that are not going to last. Mm -hmm. you got to look at earnings out three or four years. And cyclical industries, when you do that, you see that it's an earnings peak and we're about to collapse. Stocks go down, buy it on the collapse, then uh, ride it on the rebound. That's how we're playing these stocks. So that's the strategy with semis right now. Okay. Strategy for semis. Lastly, uh, we still have those cannabis stocks. Still pretty bearish on that? Yeah, not even. Not even really worth talking about. <laughs> Cannabis, cannabis stocks are, are continue to be one of my least favorite industries out there. Mm -hmm. There's some hope about positive legislation. The stocks pop and then they retreat. I just stay away from those guys. doesn't matter if there's positive legislation or not. They just eat each other's margins. They eat mm -hmm. and eat and eat and eat. And yeah, revenues might surge, but tell me when one of them is profitable. Tell me when mm -hmm. one of them is turning those big revenues into big profits. Then I might buy that stock because they clearly got something working, yeah. whether it's marketing or product or distribution. But those moats are not established enough right now for me to be convinced that there is enormous profit production potential out of any of those names. Eventually, there will be. Eventually, a Coca-Cola of cannabis will be established. It's going to mm -hmm. happen. Who's it going to be? Gotcha. I, yeah. I have no I, how, mm -hmm. how do you know? Right? I, I don't know how to know that. So until I get visibility into that, stay away. And that's that. That's my viewpoint on the whole industry. Okay, sounds good. Stay away from cannabis. <laughs> crypto check-in. Uh, let's talk about cryptos real quickly. You know, big breakout last week, big breakdown this week. You've preached consolidation around 20,000 for months now. Is that still the call into the end of the year? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was that. Yeah, there was a big breakout last week on, on Bitcoin. It looked like some people were getting really excited about it, and we actually wrote our subscribers in the weekly update and said, "Don't fall for this. Uh -huh. It's it's a head fake. We're gonna continue to consolidate." Um, but what's really interesting is if you look at the the Bitcoin chart, uh -huh. which I'll um I'll try to pull up for you right now. It's a chart we put together last week. So this is actually not uh, doesn't take into consideration the current. Uh, state of affairs after okay. the, the, the sell-off. But uh, if you look at that chart, what we do see is we're going to get towards a make-or-break moment for Bitcoin pretty soon, just technically mm -hmm. speaking. Um, what we have is what's called a, a descending triangle of, of sorts in, in the chart, mm -hmm. uh, where a downtrending line is converging on a very flat support line. Okay. And this is going to cause some big movement when the two fully converge. So let's go ahead and look at the chart right now. So here's a chart of Bitcoin since the November peak, right? Mm -hmm. We can see that we have this descending bear market trend line connecting all the peaks, right? Yep. Uh, and then we have this flat sort of support line here right below 20,000, right around 19,000. Mm -hmm. This is going to converge at some point. Okay. When this convergence happens, Bitcoin mm -hmm. is either going to break up or break down in a meaningful mm -hmm. way. So when we wrote this chart last week, it was right here. Bitcoin actually did come up and, and made a run for this, didn't quite get here. Um, mm -hmm. But what we said is, hey, this is probably going to continue, but it's going to be a head fake. We're going to come right back down to the support line because what we're doing is we're consolidating before a decisive moment. That's what we're doing in cryptos right now. We're mm -hmm. consolidating before a decisive moment. So we think we continue to consolidate. The consolidation gets narrower and narrower and narrower until we eventually come to this decisive moment, which is going to happen. Technically speaking, this is around October, uh, November. So maybe it happens then. Maybe it happens sooner. It happens a little bit later. I don't know. Charts aren't perfect. But when I look at this, what I do think is that something big is going to happen in the last quarter of the year, in the fourth quarter mm -hmm. of the year. Bitcoin is going to decide whether it wants to enter a new bull market or take another significant leg lower to a new Bear, to new bear market lows around $10,000. Mm -hmm. I think, as you can see in this chart, 
betting on a breakout. I think the breakout's going to happen because, again, I think inflation is going to keep cooling. If inflation mm-hmm. keeps cooling, this is when inflation soared. This is what happened to Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So if inflation cools, it should do the other thing. It should go the other way. We are going to get a mean reversion in all these things related to the economy. You're going to get a mean reversion in inflation. You're going to get a mean reversion in monetary policy. You're going to get a mean reversion in rates. You're going to get a mean reversion in yields. All those mean reversions are probably going to play out over the next six to 12 months. As they play out, Bitcoin trajectory is going to flip. It's not going to do this. It's going to do this. So I mm-hmm. think the decisive moment we're building towards is a decisive moment of a breakout in Bitcoin. And right now, I would continue to be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Eventually, you're going to get confirmation. This is either going to be a breakout or a breakdown. If we get breakout confirmation, that's when all those stocks on your buy list or all those cryptos on your buy list, you go out and you buy them for the new bull market. But until then, you wait. You stay Mm -hmm. risk adverse. This is a very volatile asset, very long-term asset. There's no need to jump in right now with cryptos. And so Mm -hmm. that, my friend, is the crypto check-in. Okay. Well, that covers all of our topics, but we definitely still have a few fan questions left over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke from Rob Norman, why are interest rates skyrocketing? Since your prediction of the 10-year going to 2%, they're up 26%. Uh, interest rates are skyrocketing because inflation is elevated still and the Fed is going to fight in. We think inflate, We think interest rates, there's a difference between interest rates and treasury yields, right? Interest mm-hmm. rates are decided by the Fed, treasury yields are decided by the market, especially long-term treasury yields, 10-year plus Mm -hmm. treasury yields. So there's a difference between those two. Interest rates are going to keep going significantly higher because the Mm -hmm. Fed is going to, like I said, boom, 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 boom. They're going to fight this tooth and nail, especially after the CPI print. We're probably going to get 100, 75, 75. We can get another 300 basis points of hiking by the end of the year. So interest rates are going to go higher. The interest Mm -hmm. rates are by the Fed. Treasury yields, the market-traded yields, based on those interest rates, are probably going to peak out. I think that you know the technical chart that we've been showing our subscribers is yields are going to make a run towards 3.5%. That was okay. their peak. Uh, I don't know if I have a chart to pull up here right now. But um, <laughs> under Treasury yields, they, they peaked at 3, 3.5% earlier this okay. year. They pulled back meaningfully. Now they're making a massive run back to 3.5%. We think they hit 3.5% on the head. That's technical resistance. They get rejected there, and then we form a classic double-topping pattern, at which point market yields then crash to 2%. That's our call. We mm-hmm. do not think that Treasury yields can continue to soar in the event that oil prices are dropping, inflation is slowing, the economy is slowing. All of those things are happening. That means yields go lower. Even if the Fed's hiking rates, that means Treasury yields go lower. So we're still very, very, have very high conviction on the call for treasury yields to form a double top at around 3.5%. So they're going to keep going higher. They're going to top out there and then begins a long descent to 2% on the 10-year treasury yield. And that provides a tailwind for stocks. That's the sort of mean reversion trade that I'm talking about right now. Okay. Yes. I think if you kind of zoom out macroeconomically speaking, there's a lot of weird stuff happening in the market right now. And it's creating a lot of extremes in macroeconomic factors. Inflation mm-hmm. is at an extreme. Treasury yields have risen in a way that is extremist. We have never seen treasury yields rise as quickly or as sharply as they have over the past six to eight months. It is an extreme move. Mm-hmm. Monetary policy is in an extreme level right now. Last time we saw the Fed rattle off 75 basis point hike after 75 basis point hike with the consideration of a 100 basis point hike was 40 years ago. We're at extreme monetary policy levels right now. Across the board, we are at extreme levels. Mm -hmm. The thing about extremes, Aaron, is they don't last. Mm -hmm. Extremes never last. Good extremes don't last and bad extremes don't last. So if we're at extremes on inflation, Word extremes on yields, word extremes on monetary policy. Guess what happens next? A mean reversion of those extremes. Inflation reverts to normal levels. Treasury yields revert to normal levels. Um, Monetary policy reverts to normal levels. 
That is the theme of the next six to 12 months. There's going to be a ton of noise, two steps forward, one step back, two mm-hmm. steps forward, one step back. There's going to be a ton of noise over the next 12 months, but the theme is going to be a mean reversion of extreme macroeconomic factors. And that reversion is going to cause stocks to move higher. Because another extreme that we're seeing is that stocks are down big. Stocks mm-hmm. don't go big. That's not what they do. Their mm-hmm. mean, their their normal is going higher, ten percent a year. That's their normal. So the fact that we're seeing stocks down 25 percent, thirty percent, the fact that we're seeing some individual names down 90 percent, that's mm-hmm. extreme. And now we're and extremes don't last. Version. And extremes don't last. And now we're gonna get a mean reversion. So if I had to say there's one theme over the next twelve months, it's mean reversion of extreme macroeconomic factors, the biggest of which is inflation, hence Mm -hmm. disinflation, but it's also to do with treasury yield. It's also Mm -hmm. to do with monetary policy. It's also to do with economic activity. It's also to do with supply chains. It's also to do with stock price performance. It has to do with a lot of different things. Mean reversion of extreme macroeconomic factors caused by the COVID-19 pandemic is the theme, will be the theme over the next 12 months. So, so long as that's a theme, I think Interest rates do go higher for a little bit, then they come lower. Treasury yields go higher, then they come lower, and stocks go higher. So that's my call, Rob. Okay. Uh, Our next question comes from Rusty Russ. What are your thoughts on all the predictions being thrown around for further declines and a crash from where we are? Names, for example, Burry, Grantham, El Iron, Kiyosaki, Dalio, etc. A lot of YouTube videos going around lately. Should we be keeping more in our portfolio in cash right now? The louder the bears get, the more bullish I get. One okay. of the key ingredients, the best thing working for the stock market rally is that nobody likes it. Mm-hmm. That's the best thing working for it. If all these people are still bearish, that means there's a lot of ammunition on the sidelines ready to come in on good news. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, you need bears to keep the market in check. If everybody was bullish, man, that's the moment I get scared. Because when everybody's <laughs> bullish, we are, we're, we're heading, everyone's wearing blindfolds and just running. And that's yeah. when you go off a cliff. But uh-huh. everybody's screaming bearish. Even bulls like me, we're mm-hmm. tiptoeing. Yeah. Okay? We're not, no one has blindfolds on and is running towards the cliff. Mm-hmm. Even the loudest bulls, JP Morgan, uh, myself, uh, Fundstrat, some of the, 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 the very, the very um, well-known bulls out there, mm-hmm. tiptoeing. You know, they're not out there saying we're going 40% higher, 50%. No, they're, you know, they're tiptoeing. Mm-hmm. And that is the beauty of a hated stock market rally is you don't create excesses in hated stock market rally. So the fact that Burry's saying, you know, this isn't the bottom, the fact that Dalio is is bearish, the fact that, um, I don't know who, what were some of the other names mentioned in this question? Uh, we had uh, Elirin, Kiyosaki, Dalio, Grantham. Ah, Grantham, Grantham, the guy that's called the bubble. He's called, uh, he's correctly predicted 22 of the last two recessions. Um, mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah, so th- these are just perma bears that are out there just just pounding the table on it. And then some of those other guys that we're talking about, some of those other names are just people capitalizing on the fear. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact of the matter is don't listen. What you need to pay attention to, don't even listen to me. <laughs> what you need to pay attention to mm-hmm. is the course of inflation. Mm-hmm. If inflation goes lower, stocks will go higher. If inflation goes higher, stocks will go lower. So forget me, forget Grantham, forget Burry, forget everything else. Just look at the data. Look at the numbers mm-hmm. for yourself and decide what do you want to do. Mm-hmm. Is inflation going lower? It is going lower. Is it going lower fast enough? Well, decide. Decide. For your, make, make that decision for yourself. But know, mm-hmm. know that over 150 years, stocks have done one thing. They've gone up. Mm-hmm. They keep going up. Setbacks are always temporary. So regardless of what anyone else is saying, me, JP Morgan, Michael Burry, whatever anybody else is saying, just look at the market for yourself and understand, okay, what's your time frame? Mm-hmm. Are you trying to make a quick buck? You got to pay attention to what these people are saying. Yeah. Are you trying to invest and create wealth for the long term? It doesn't matter if Burry thinks the bottom is in or not. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if David Moore thinks the bottom is in. It doesn't matter if Funstrat thinks. It doesn't matter what any of these people think. What matters is you got a 150-year history of the stock market always bouncing back from bear markets and always going on to make new highs. It's an undefeated track record. So what type of investor are you? you got to ask mm-hmm. yourself that question. But at the end of the day, don't base your investment decision-making on someone else's opinion, even mm-hmm. mine. Don't ever do that. Mm-hmm. Take the opinion, 
do your own research, do your own due diligence, and then make a decision. That, that, that's probably my best advice for any investor in this market or any market for that matter. Mm -hmm. All right. Good advice. Uh, last question from Mike S. Uh, let's project eight years from now, which would be the year 2030, if inflation does persist or maybe we have stagflation, anything other than inflation or yields going down. If this continues till the end of the decade until 2030, what will that do to stocks like SoFi, Open, and some of the other growth stocks? What is the long-term view of these stocks? I, I think if if that does happen, let's play that situation out in the next sure. eight years. Double down to, is 5% plus inflation, yields go to 5% plus, uh, Fed stays on, on a hawkish path for, for eight years. Mm -hmm. um, let's say that does happen. Things will be fine. It's just going to mm -hmm. be a slower level of growth. You want to talk about Open Door and SoFi. Open Door is going to be fine because then the housing market will just readjust to that. It's going to be a sharp – if that does happen, it's going to be a, a pretty sharp crash in 2023. And mm -hmm. then it's going to normalize and adjust. That's what economies do. They adjust to the era. So mm -hmm. if we do have 5% plus inflation forever, then home prices are going to adjust to that. The housing market's going to adjust to that. The, the buyer and seller the dynamics in the housing market are going to adjust to that. And Open Door is going to adjust its business model to that and its pricing algorithms to that. So it's going to be a near-term hit followed by what will be growth over the next eight years. Then for SoFi, same situation. They just have to reprice their business because consumers are going to change their spending habits if inflation stays at 5% forever. Um, mm -hmm. So that's going to have to do the calculus is going to change in how they run their business, probably a near-term hit, and then growth after that. So play it out, eight years, inflation stays hot. What's, what happens? What happens is stocks probably take another meaningful leg lower in 2022, 2023, maybe 20%, 30% lower, pretty big graph. Mm -hmm. Then we bottom and we adjust to that 5% inflation rate. Valuations adjust to yields being above 5% normally. And once we adjust, we go higher on the back of earnings growth. Because if inflation is there, then earnings are probably going higher, right? It's going to be very rare if we get inflation and, and no earnings growth. So mm -hmm. we readjust valuations and then we head higher on the back of earnings growth. Because at the end of the day, two things drive stock prices, P multiples and earnings. Inflation shouldn't impact earnings. Inflation mm -hmm. impacts P multiple. So we reprice P multiples to higher inflation, higher permanent inflation, and then we head higher. So eight years, what happens at Open Door and SoFi? They drop another 20%, and then they grind higher by 10, 15% a year into the end of the decade. That's what I would say happens in the rare event that mm -hmm. inflation stays very hot for very long. And it's a mm -hmm. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap? Uh, no, I just, I, I think one thing I do want to, I mean, yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I do want to emphasize is I, I'm seeing all the headlines and I'm talking to people and texting people about how the CPI print was the rally breaker. And it, it's not turning out to be that. It, it is very impressive that we only give back half of the four-day rally gains into the print um, on a very bad print. So mm -hmm. I, from where I sit, it, it's weird to say with the NASDAQ down 4%, but honestly, I feel pretty good about things right now, like really good. This is a, a very healthy, necessary mm -hmm. pullback Test that support trend line, boom, bounce off it, confirmation. This is a new bull market. So I feel really good about things. I feel really, really, really good. Not to mention, you know, our top 10 portfolio uh, of stocks in, in our paid products, you know, that, that's still up 47% from its June low. So, I mean, mm -hmm. two steps forward, one step back, baby. Uh, and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy about what we're doing. I'm very happy. Good. Well, hopefully everybody's happy from watching this episode. We want to thank everybody for listening. If you have any questions or comments for Luke, please leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like to discover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.